0: someone say once, some days you're the pigeon and some days you're the statue. Now you might need to marinate on that statement later to let the full meaning set in, but it'll come to you, trust me, it'll come to you. Okay, so last episode we spent some time exploring kind of us being the pigeon, how and why you and I steal the shalom of others when we often behave more like our ancient ancestor, Adam, than we do our creator. And And to be fair, others do the same to us, don't they? I mean, others can steal our shalom too. They can be the pigeons dropping their little white packages all over us. Sometimes, we're the statue. And other people can make life very, well, very messy and difficult. Uh, Even sometimes very painful. But there are bigger sorrows, aren't there? I mean, things that are more like tsunamis than simply cloudy days. Circumstances that seem to threaten to crush us, not just upset us, and sometimes they're unrelenting. They just seem to keep coming with hardly any space just to catch our breath. Life can sometimes become almost too much to bear, or at least it feels that way. If you can't relate to what I just said, I know I'm at least talking about someone you know. And beloved, to be honest with you, I'm talking about you a few years from now if you can't relate to it today. Welcome or welcome back to the Road to Shalom, a podcast exploring the way life's supposed to be. I'm Fran Schaka, the director of Hands of Her, and I'm also the host of the show. In this episode, What Do I Do When My Floaties Fail? We're going to take a lesson from a man long dead who still speaks loudly and compassionately from the grave to all of us facing pain and sorrow through a song he wrote. A man whose life circumstances should have caused him to quit or curse, but didn't. I'm guessing you might not know this man's story, even though you know this man's song. But by the end of this episode, you will, and, and, you will be deeply grateful for him. You might even know yourself a little bit better as a result. So, let's go learn a few things about finding Shalom in the Storm from a guy named Horatio Spafford. I want to take some time for us to spend looking at some men and a couple women that are dead that uh, wrote some hymns. And I want to spend some time looking at their lives. I want to spend some time unpacking the theology that's in their hymns. If you've studied anything about modern worship movement, um, there's a far cry in some of the modern worship from some of the old hymns in terms of content. And uh, I want to spend some time doing that. I think there's a tremendous amount of encouragement that we can, we can get from that. And we're going to stand at the end and we're going to sing this, sing the hymn. And I hopefully we will, we will sing it with a greater sense of an informed passion for where it came from, why we have it, a deep sense of gratitude for the man or woman that gave it to us, and a deeper understanding of, uh, of what's in it. But one of the things I thought we'd do this first session, I'm going to kind of fly through this, but I think it's important. I want to try to bring a couple things together before we take a look at the first hymn. And I want to, I kind of want to unlearn some of the untruths. We've got a couple untruths that have to do with singing in particular and a couple other things. And one of them is the idea that how well I sing is more important than I sing. And there's a reason that we have a deep sense of hesitation to sing with our whole hearts. As I've gotten older, there's a couple things that have to do with the Christian life that sometimes are considered kind of either sissy or female things. And singing kind of falls in that nether zone in between there. And we have a hard time sometimes, particularly if we're in a mixed group. It's almost always the female voices that you hear. If you've ever been to a Promise Keepers conference, then you know the the deep movement of God that you can sense when a group of men sing together. But as a rule, we have a hard time doing that. And part of it is because we believe this. We believe that it's more important how well we sing than, than that we sing. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that the fall in Genesis 3 created a relative world where everything, including people, are graded by their peers rather than by God. I'm not sure if we've processed this. But this is true of everything from cellular download speeds to national football championships to ACT scores to dance competitions, track and field, everything. Everything is, we live in a graded society and so we tend to think how well people sing. We put ourselves on the continuum and end up coming out feeling on the, on the short end. That's, that's one thing that's, that's not true. It's not true. How well I sing is more important than I sing. Second untruth that I want to look at is that idea that singing is kind of optional and peripheral rather than essential and central to life. That singing is kind of optional. And it's out there. It's really not at the core of life itself. And th- there's a reason that's uh, that's not true. couple reasons. It's a common thought. So It's a humanistic thought. A guy uh, named Voltaire thought this, back in the 18th century, made a statement that I thought was really interesting. Anything that's too stupid to be spoken is sung. That's a, that is a stupid statement in itself. If you, if you understand some things about the ancient past, the laws of Greece were sung. In an oral culture, singing was a powerful form of memory. A historian named Herodotus wrote nine volumes of history, and they all were written to be sung. Uh, much of the history of the Old Testament, much of the Jewish history, was involved in in song all right that was his idea that was Voltaire's idea it was wrong and I think the reason this is so significant for us is we live in a culture that deals with listening I wonder if our great-great-grandchildren are going to wonder why our generation moved past one another in silence with white wires coming out of their ears uh, we are a listening culture and listening moves from the outside in and it just involves the senses uh, you and I can listen to music, and I do uh, in my car. I suspect you do as well. But singing's different. Singing moves from the inside out, and it involves my heart and mind. If you sing in the shower, uh, if you sing in the car, if you sing at all, it involves more of us, more of us. And this is true, honestly, this is true of everything from a classical hymn all the way to uh, the spectrum of country-western music. Um, the lyrical content is trying to communicate something. It engages us, and when we listen to it, it's one thing. When we find ourselves singing, we sing. We only sing things that have captured us somehow. There's a reason that we sing. All right. And if you look at our Bibles, beloved, about eight percent of our entire Old Testament involves the songs of others, the prayerful songs of others. Not just the Psalms, but if you go through the book of Exodus, you go through the book of Judges, there's people singing. It's a big part of the Bible. So this is the part I want to focus on. Singing seems to be the spontaneous response of creation in the face of the work of God. If you go to the book of Job, when God's got Job pinned against the mat and he's grilling him about trying to help him understand that he's in the dark in terms of his understanding of God himself. He says, were you there at the beginning of creation when I made everything and the sons of God sang? Were you there? And we kind of get hung up on the the heaviness of what he's saying to Job in terms of his rebuke, but the subtle fact that's kind of buried in all of that is the fact that when God spoke the universe into creation, there was a celebratory singing going on in, his he- in heaven. Even the fallen angels understand this. Now, this is a whole investigation that we can't go into. I don't mean because we haven't got time, we haven't got any information. We don't know what all the demons knew before they became demons what they experienced. And I talked to an Old Testament scholar that said that if you trace pagan worship all throughout antiquity, there's certain similarities in the way they construct their temples and the way they construct their places of worship that indicates that it's a mirror of maybe what was in heaven. That there's so much similarity that there's got to be some common source. I mean, to me, this is a huge thing. The demons are the only ones that get Jesus' identity right. They get it right every time in the Gospels. You know why? Because they knew him before they fell and before he had a body. I mean, that'll fry your circuits, but th- that's, that's the reason they always got it right. I know who you are, they said. So all of creation sang. All of, of, all of the hosts of heaven sang at, at creation. All right. Then you get Moses and Miriam and all of Israel singing. They're singing at the fall of Pharaoh. Right? It's the first thing that happens. In the book of Exodus, chapter 15, they start singing. Miriam starts dancing and gets the women of Israel dancing, and they put it to song right away, celebrating what? Celebrating God's victory. All right. There's an angel that appears to some shepherds, and pretty soon the whole sky's full of angels. We got to be careful, beloved. We got to be real careful with this one. I think we have this unconscious idea that what happened in the field that night was kind of like a very sophisticated Christmas program. That these angels all rehearsed this, and they said, gosh, it's a week away, man. I just can't remember my part, you know, I just, uh, I don't think that was it at all. I, I think that is, is totally spontaneous. Angelic hosts rejoicing over the work of God and redemption that got to this point. God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth, was at its crucial point, the incarnation and they just are celebrating they're just celebrating singing was the last thing jesus did in community before his crucifixion the gospel tells us that after he laid out all this stuff who's going to betray him all this sort of stuff judas had gone he wiped he had washed their feet it says they sang a hymn and went to the garden singing was a big part of jesus life all right Paul says in Ephesians and Colossians that singing is what evidenced the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church of God. A church that sings is a church where the Spirit dwells. And I suppose the inverse of that is true. A group of God's people that cannot sing may not possess the Spirit or have not given the Spirit freedom. Um, Singing. Was one of the things that he said is a, a byproduct of of the filling of the Spirit. Third untruth is that my spiritual life is private and personal. Right? This is one of the unfortunate byproducts of marrying Christianity and democracy. You know, we've got a, a, a political system that's based on individual rights and privileges, and sometimes we ca- we take our spirituality and put it over in that same camp, and really, the opposite ends up being the truth. True spirituality exists in community. You see that in probably the clearest in Paul's teaching in Corinthians when he said when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Though we are many parts, we are one body. Uh, this is true of, in terms of solidarity with our brothers and sisters across the world that are suffering. But it's also true of us as a community here that have gathered together. And the second thing, and I've taught on this before, but God's work in my life, God's work in your life is always for the benefit of others. Uh, we've even made our sanctification our own deal. The Holy Spirit working in my life is for me. It's to help me have a better marriage, a better whatever. And that's not true. That's partially true. But Paul makes it very clear that we've been comforted so that we can comfort others. He says that in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, verses 3 and 4, that the comfort we ourselves have received in all of our affliction, we're able to comfort those in any affliction. In this room, comprehensively in this room, I think is is the means of of ministry to anyone else in this room. That if you take all of us in this room and look what we've been through in our in our personal lives, there's not a person in this room that can't have someone in this room minister to them with integrity and, and with empathy and understanding. I saw that last March. Um Two or three men in this room came up to me as soon as they found out I had prostate cancer and talked to me, gave me phone numbers, gave me insights, offered to meet with me. And that's true, beloved. Part of what you and I go through is for people we've yet to meet, which is the opposite of thinking that my spiritual life is personal and private. Now there's a few conclusions that we can draw from this, and this is kind of where we're heading. First one is that singing is a reasonable response from a redeemed heart. It's a reasonable response from a redeemed heart. In other words, if the angels sing, if all of creation sings in response to the work of God, and I've been reunited with the God in whose image I'm created, then singing ought to be a normal part of my life as someone who possesses the same spirit. It's a normal response. It's a reasonable response of a heart that's been redeemed. And secondly, and this is the one I want to focus on for what we're going to do with the remainder of this time until March, Is that like the songs, I think, of the ancient redeemed? The ancient redeemed. Guys like David and Asaph and Korah, and the ones that, and Miriam and Moses. In the same fashion, the songs of the more recent redeemed are a gift to the church. They're a gift to us. And by that, I simply mean, and this is something, you know, we, and I don't want to put uh, Horatio Spafford on the same plane as the Apostle Paul, don't get me wrong, in terms of inspiration. But in terms of a genuine gift to the church, to the to the people of God, both of them are gifts to the church. Paul even taught that. He taught that to the Corinthians. He says, Apollos is yours, Peter is yours, I am yours, everything is yours. He said, these are all gifts to the people of God. So we can benefit from the pain, the suffering, the joy of others, all right? Think we're going to find that some of these folks are folks of like nature, particularly men of like nature. So, we're going to start this morning, all right? We're going to take a look at some hymns, and my desire is that they would be a source of encouragement to us. And I picked this guy for a couple reasons. I picked Horatio Spafford, Horatio G. Spafford. We're going to start with him for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is that he's a lot closer to us and our experience in the last 12 to 24 months. Uh, than uh, other people that I've that I've studied, we're going to follow the same thing that I've done in the past. All right, we're going to start out with the world behind the hymn. We're going to spend some time looking at this guy, trying to figure out a few more things about him. Where, you know, what prompted him to write this hymn? It is well with my soul. We're going to look at the world of the hymn in terms of some unpacking some of the theology that obviously this man knew. And then we're going to take a look at the world in front of the hymn. What in the world's this got to do with us? What can we learn from this? A couple things about this guy. Some of you that know him probably know a little bit about him. There's one classic point about this man's life that ends up being shared whenever the hymn is sung in some churches. But I want to give you a little bit more. He was a successful and wealthy lawyer in the Chicago area in the 19th century. He was born in 1828 in New York, but he, he became a very, very successful lawyer and very wealthy lawyer in uh, the Chicago area. What about his spiritual life? Well, he hung out with a guy named D.L. Moody. That tells you something. Uh, Moody was the one that, we're, we pro- you probably know him from the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, but he founded three or four schools and colleges around the United States, a couple on the East Coast. That's the one that's persisted. Amazing guy. Had, I think, six years of education. Had a passion for the poor of inner-city Chicago and wanted them to learn how to read. But he was a friend of his, and, and and other people that wrote about Spafford said he was a deeply spiritual man and very well acquainted with the Scriptures. All right, In 1861, he married a girl from Norway named Anna Larson, and uh, they had, had five children. Now, I want you to picture this as a father. We're all men in this room, so this is easy to do for most of us. Got married in, in 1865. About nine years later, his only son, Horatio Jr., Jr., died of scarlet fever. He was four years old. Right? A lot of folks don't know that. A lot of folks don't know that he lost his only son at age four. Uh, I've not had to face that. I've had friends that have. T- to lose a child is a wrenching thing. To lose your only son for a father is a, is a double, doubly difficult thing. That happened in, in 1870. A year later, he lost almost all of his investments in a thing called the Chicago Fire. Uh, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire happened, and he lost almost all of his investments. It was a terrible, terrible time. So here's a guy that has lost his four-year-old son, and he's had most of his finances wiped out, certainly not all of them, but most of his finances wiped out. What do you do with something like that? Well... Someone suggested, and he agreed a few years later, they decided they were going to take a trip to England uh, for spiritual refreshment, for some R&R, just to get away, get a clean sense of perspective. All of us have done something like this, gone to the mountains, gone to the beach, gone someplace, gone to the lake, just to kind of get our head cleared out or aired out. And he was also hoping to get some nourishment for his soul because D.L. Moody was in England at that time on doing a, a, a series of teachings. And so he planned this trip with his wife, himself and his four daughters, to go to England from the U.S. At the last minute, he had to stay back because of work. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? And he tells his wife and four daughters, you go on ahead. And in November of that year, 20th, I think it was, the ship they were on collided with another iron sailing vessel. 226 people died, including all four of his daughters. This is a guy that lost his four-year-old son. This is a guy that lost almost all of his economic holdings, and then he loses all four of his daughters. It was this year that he wrote this hymn. This hymn was written in 1873. Okay, and I was thinking a lot about this one, and I've, I'm not sure if you've thought about this. Some of you have heard about this him losing his daughters. His wife sent a two. This is before Twitter, right? His wife sent a two-word telegram to him. Saved alone. That's all he got. You know, as a dad of daughters and some of the stuff we have gone through in the last couple of years, you know, one of the gnawing, haunting things I deal with, and I have to keep trying to seek the, seek the Lord's peace on this, but you wonder sometimes in the cases of decisions regarding your family if you've, if you've made the right choice. As a dad, you wonder sometimes if I could have been there. All right. If his wife was saved, his four daughters drowned, any dad on the planet had to have been thinking to himself, if I had been there, I may have been able to save one or more of my daughters. And he stayed behind because of work. You know, and I don't want to Freudianize this guy. Make this more than it is. But I think we do a disservice if we think that he just kind of sailed through this and those kinds of thoughts didn't gnaw at him over the years, all right? Senses of regret, probably. But this was a very difficult thing, all right? The next seven years, they had three more kids. And then in 1881, he has another son of those three. That son dies of pneumonia. So here's a guy that lost both of his sons, lost four of his daughters, had his economic security wiped out, all right? And then they moved. They left the United States, moved to Jerusalem, and started getting involved with ministry to the poor. He died at, at age 60. I've lived longer than Horatio Spafford. And in 1888, he died of malaria, serving the poor in, in Jerusalem. Okay, I think it's important that we understand this is the guy that has given us a hymn that gets sung in lots of churches. Uh, this didn't come out of uh, spending time at Starbucks in the morning with a latte and his... And his Bible just thinking about stuff and writing or going to some mountain retreat. This, this hymn came out of the fires of life. All right. Now I want to spend some time looking at the world of the hymn. And I think this is where we really get to see this man's heart. And we also get to see part of the reason maybe that God allowed him to endure something like this that found expression in a song that's found ministry in our hearts and in our, in our lives starts out, when peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And we're going to look at one point from each of these hymns. The first one, in the first stanza, Stafford separated the condition of his soul from the circumstances of his life. I'm not good at this and maybe some of you can identify with me in this, the circumstances of my life often, in my mind, are the condition of my soul. So when people walk up to you and say, how how you doing? Or how are you? Spafford wouldn't have said, oh man, lost my business, lost my daughters. This is what he said. You know, when peace like a river attendeth my soul, when things are good, when sorrows like sea billows roll, And it wasn't just that his four daughters died in sea. That's what a lot of folks think. That's what the point there. Sea billows rolling is one thing after another, after another, after another. He said, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He understood, I think, Paul's metaphor, the jars of clay, which is a really powerful metaphor. We usually talk about that in terms of our weakness and God's supremacy, but if you keep reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Struck down but not destroyed. Spafford understood something about life and and we're going to see this all through this hymn. Spafford understood that life's difficulties are part of the normalcy for a believer. It's the normal Christian life because he understood Genesis 3, I think. He also has, seems to have learned what Paul called his secret. I've learned the secret that in whatever state I am to be content, I know how to bound and I know how to be abased. I've learned how to face any and every circumstance. And Paul wrote that, beloved, from a prison cell. You know, there's something in the soul of that man that was similar to the soul of Spafford that he really understood that about life. Second thing, and this is, I'm not sure, this is probably just my own neuroses, but he really, I think, Spafford believed that Jesus was in the boat with him, not in the sea. What do I mean by that? I sometimes feel like God's God's out to get me. Didn't give enough, didn't pray enough, didn't read enough, didn't minister enough, and consequently God says, all right. And I think when you look at that story about Jesus in the boat asleep, you know, my tendency is to think it's him that's messing with the ocean rather than seeing him asleep in the boat. That he's with me rather than against me. And Paul, I mean, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all Things And I think Spafford seemed to understand that, that whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, taught me to say, I've learned it. I've learned it as uh, well with my soul. Second stanza, though Satan should buffet, though trials shall come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. I think this is huge. Stafford understood that the destination of his soul rested on what Christ already knew about him, not what Spafford might do. What do I mean? Spafford said that it was his helpless estate that Christ had taken and paid attention to and shed his blood for him in his helplessness. Paul makes that same statement. While we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Alright? Look up here once. I'm not sure if you've ever really wrestled with this. Alright? But I hope that you've come to the place where you are not a Christian because you want to be a Christian. But you are a Christian because you have absolutely, positively, no other hope. And it's bigger than he chose me and I didn't choose him. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you and I are hopelessly, hopelessly lost apart from the shed blood of Christ. And I think the think what Spafford realized was that the destination, he was going to get there. His soul was going to make it because the, the very beginning of it, Christ had already regarded the helplessness of, of himself. The, to me, this is a tremendous, tremendous assurance. That your helplessness, his helplessness, is the foundation of his hope. It's the opposite of the cultural standard. I mean, if there's anything, anything that I'm responsible for in regard to my justification, dealing with my guilt and my sin, I am damned. I'm on a grease pole to hell. I mean, there is no hope. And it's the hopelessness That is the foundation of our hope. Helplessness, that's the foundation of our hope. I think this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And also, God's initiative was the assurance of His safety. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you knowing your helplessness, knowing your inability to finish the job, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Beautiful assurance. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This is a heavy thing, I think. Spafford's greatest joy came from what was missing from his life, not what was present. This is really counterintuitive and countercultural. Oh, the bliss, the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. His guilt was gone. And the absence of guilt in Spafford's life seemed to balance out the loss of finances, the loss of children and i'm not saying he sailed through this no no dad sails through this you know for a, a man of integrity the loss of business is also the loss of the ability to provide for a family and so there's all of that going on as well and as well as the loss of his daughters but i think the safety of his soul remedied the sorrow of his heart there was a a balance there your guilt my guilt is gone the living bible translates a passage in colossians i memorized this when i was really a young man and I've never forgotten it because it's so powerful. It says Christ has brought you into the very presence of God. And you are standing there with nothing left against you. Nothing that He can even scold you for. That's the bliss. That was the absence of guilt rather than the presence of stuff. And I'm not sure in our lives, in your life, is there is there is there when you think of is it the presence of things, is it rather than the absence of guilt that is your source of joy or what you try to make your source of joy. You know, the older we get, those of us that are in that club, the more we realize that things just don't satisfy, things just don't do it, things, you know. I remember reading someplace that said, if you live long enough, enough, life will trash your trophies. And I thought that's really a good way to put it. matter of fact, I saw that when I was teaching at Briarwood. I was there for 11 years, and they had a pretty good uh, sports program back in the day there. And uh, I remember one day I saw a whole box of trophies on a table in the teacher's workroom that were on their way to the dumpster. And the reason was is there was only so much trophy case space, and they had outgrown the space, and so they had to go through and kind of weed out the trophies that they could get rid of. But having taught for 25 years in Christian schools, I know that at some point in the school's history there was great celebration and all kinds of screaming and yelling and holding up this trophy thinking this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it ended up in a dumpster long after those men and women graduated. Uh, and that's really true. It's really true here is that the, what's missing from our life, and you and I need to celebrate this. If you haven't today, when you get in your car and you're driving up or down 280, whatever, thank God. The Lord, that your sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. The last thing He said, O oh Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend, even so, It is well with my soul. I think this is really cool because it's something that I've been teaching a lot lately about the story. If any of you have been in any of my venues, you know that I have a passion about the story. And Spafford really captures that idea here. His longing was for the end of the story, not for a better next chapter. You know, in our culture, sometimes in our thinking, we buy into this idea if I can get through this, it's going to be better on the other side. You know, the next chapter is going to be good. Next chapter is going to be better. Can't get any worse. And Spafford longed for the end of the story. Now, he didn't, he didn't sit back and be idle. We know that. He gave his life to the poor near the end in in Jerusalem. He's buried there at Mount Zion Cemetery in Jerusalem. Wished I'd have known this a few years ago. I was there. I would have liked to have found out where he's buried. But he, he longed for the end of the story. And there's a reason for that, a powerful reason. And that was that Spafford knew that pain and suffering and sorrow would be absent only when sin was absent. It's a clear teaching of the book of Revelation about the fact that there will be no more sorrow, no more crying out, no more death, no more disease, no more dying. But it's also the clear teaching of Paul in 2 Thessalonians when he's writing to these believers that are just being persecuted like crazy and he basically says to them that God's going to deliver you from this when Jesus comes back. And that's the end of the story, beloved. And I think it helps us have perspective that it, Jesus, right? Jesus said, in this life we have what? Tribulation, but be of good cheer. You know, In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Paul went all throughout visiting the churches that he had planted. On, on his first journey, on his second journey he went back telling them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think Spafford understood and accepted the fact that in this life, suffering is part of the fabric, and he longed for the next, rather than just a better next chapter. Uh, I think this is this is important for us. And I'm not trying to be a, a gloom and doom theologian, but I think sometimes we lose track of of the of the, the place that a solid theology of Genesis three should have in our day-to-day lives. The fact that, you know what, you know, what I have gone through, what others in this room have gone through, uh difficult, you know what, but it's part of life on planet Earth in this side of the veil. And Spafford suffered more than I ever have, and by God's grace I I like to not suffer more. But uh I wouldn't change anything at this point, right? Well, let's talk about this idea of our soul. This whole song, this whole hymn is about our soul. And I want to spend some time looking at the world kind of us. And I, I think here's one principle, maybe if we can get this out of, out of this morning, is that my soul is kind of like a garden, and gardens have to be kept. The proverb, above all else, keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the springs of life. In other words, your innermost person can get corrupted and polluted, and you've got to protect that. And I think there's three things. If we think of our soul as a garden that has to be kept, that God wants us to keep our soul, All right. I think there's three things that have, have to do with keeping a garden. One of them is just the notion of, of water. And I look at the scriptures and I I see over and over and over there's these statements about God's word and our soul. I think the most beautiful one is in Psalm 19. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. And uh, I know that if you hang around me long enough, this is going to come out of my mouth, so I'll throw it out at the beginning. We've got to be people of the book. We've got to spend time in the Scriptures. You and I do. Reading them, memorizing them, listening to them, singing them. Any way that you can get the Scriptures into your head, do it. Particularly those of you that are younger. I will promise you, those of you that are in your 20s and 30s, you will need a deep well into the Word of God to make it. You're just going to. I have seen more and more believers, particularly in their 20s, bail from the Christian life, and I think one of the reasons is they have a very shallow connection to truth. Spafford had a deep connection to truth. He wasn't just a strong guy. He wasn't just a strong guy. His hymn is dripping with profound theology, which is based on a personal, intimate acquaintance with the Scripture from which the theology came. He had something to draw from when he lost his business. He had something to draw from when he lost both of his sons. He had something to draw from when he lost his daughters. You know, a guy that just survives, I would have been encouraged, but a guy that ends his life in a malaria-infested environment, ministering to the poor after going through what he went through, that says something about his soul, right? Second thing we need to be careful of regarding our soul. And if it's a garden, is weeding it. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the soils matter of fact, I just heard recently, I forgot who it was, it was some real smart and famous Christian guy that you and I would all recognize if I remembered his name. He said that he thinks that 21st century American culture, particularly suburban culture, Christian suburban culture, is the third of the soils in that parable. And that's the one where the weeds choke it out. And Jesus mentioned three specific kinds of weeds that choke out a soul. One was... The deceitfulness of wealth. The other one was the desire for more. And the third one was the cares of this life. A loss of perspective on the end of the story. The desire to rejoice over what I have rather than what's missing from my life, which was the sin and guilt. And the idea that, that wealth somehow will provide me with a sense of safety and security. And those are three areas of our lives that are constantly pulling at us. Third one is the idea of, of walls. And I, we could talk for a long time on this, but I think Peter makes a really profound statement when he talks first Peter 2.11. He says, beloved, I appeal to you as aliens and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. He said, you've got to build some walls around that. And the word he uses there, epithumia, is the word for lust. But our soul is a delicate garden, beloved. It's something that can be overgrown with weeds. It's something that can be, there's a verse, Proverbs 25:28 says a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And one of the greatest needs that we have for guarding our soul is uh, self-control, and that has to do with things we listen to, what we, you know, where we spend our time, and so on. As we look at this guy, as we look look at this hymn, all right, this idea. The main point I want you to get out of this is this idea of keeping your soul with all vigilance, for out of it flow the, str- the streams of life, and dealing with the weeds that are there, building some walls in terms of integrity and accountability. And the f- and the first one is just being men of of the word. When shalom like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? What it required from Horatio Spafford's life for us to get that hymn we so glibly sing in the comfort of our churches. But God wanted us to have that hymn. And, and he also wanted Horatio Spafford to come to the place where the condition of his soul was not controlled by the circumstances of his life. And he wants that for me, and he wants that for you today. He wants it tomorrow, and he wants it the day after that. You know, years ago, I taught a young couple who were high school sweethearts. They married after college and within a few weeks discovered that she had cancer. After years of treatment and a miracle conception, they had a daughter, Gracie. They adopted a little boy, Jack. And while the children were still very young, Cindy, the wife, collapsed in a doctor's office and died on the way to the hospital. Danny, the husband, and I reconnected and have been very, very close ever since. You know. Danny's life parallels Spafford's in many ways. You know, one of the clearest ways to me is that he illustrates, Danny illustrates that God will never waste our pain. Our pain is always purposeful. God sometimes allows us to suffer so that we can care truly and compassionately for others that are in the same pain. You know, and Danny has used his story to build hope in countless lives. He still composes and sings, and by the words and music he writes, you can tell it is well with his soul. You can find Danny's music online. Just search for Danny Ortley, O-E-R-T-L-I. And I want to close this episode with Danny's rendition of Spafford's hymn that we just looked at. I want you to listen carefully for the transition near the end. It moves from slow and sorrowful to joyful and fun. That's classic Bartley music. It's also classic Spafford, looking to the end of the story rather than a better next chapter. See you next time.